Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, uh, if you recall, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has uh, made it a point to start to uh, head now in the, in the direction of Jerusalem. He's focused on that mission which has been given to him by the Father. Uh, and he has spent much time uh, over the course of the gospel thus far uh, establishing who he is, establishing his authority and his character. And his disciples have been watching. They've been seeing what is going on with this Jesus guy who's asked us to follow him. He has asked us to, uh, to be with him, and he's put some, some really intense asks upon our lives. In fact, he has said, if you uh, lose your life for my sake, you will find it. If, if, if you give up what you have, if you find what, what you want and you, you offer it up to him and say, I'm not going to chase that down anymore, God, I'm going to give that to you. Uh, he says, in fact, you will, you will find life. You will find success in what he is determining to give to you. You will find a, a life of flourishing and contentment as your identity is found in him. But by contrast, he says, the one way that, that you're going to find that you're profoundly unhappy and disappointed, that you're going to find that you're completely jaded if, with the world and, and find that things are difficult to navigate in this life, is if you do the opposite. If you try to protect yourself, if you try to put yourself in a position where you're saying, I'm going to insulate myself from the world so no one can take advantage of me and I'm going to protect myself and make sure that uh, people know that I'm the best and that I stand for these uh, particular things and they're going to know me by my efforts and my works. He says, if you do that, if you do that, you're going to come away profoundly disappointed because it's not going to lead to life. It's going to lead to running the race where you're continually having to, to prove yourself, to work for the approval of others, to make other people happy. And so he's given them this tall task. He said, come and be with me, but you've got you've to do it my way. You've got to lose your life. And so now, as they are with him, we come to, to chapter 11, and, and they see that Jesus is here again uh, praying. They've witnessed this many times throughout their lives. They've, they've seen Jesus going away and communing with the Father on the mountain. They've seen him sneak away in the middle of the night to go and pray and to, uh, to meet with, uh, with God. They've seen this as a passion for Jesus. And now uh, they come into an encounter with him and they ask for insight. They ask, how should they go about this? And this shapes uh, not so much um, the words that they say, but he calls them back to the worldview in which he has already previously called them. If we look now at the text, we find this section, uh, you know, that you may be familiar with as the Lord's Prayer. Some uh, scholars call this section in Luke the disciples' prayer, uh, just kind of to differentiate the two, but also because this that we have here appears to be uh, a little bit different. It's much shorter in form. Uh, it's, it's, it's got less detail. Uh, the one you're probably most familiar with is the lengthier one that elaborates a little further in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, but the, what you find in, that's communicated in the Gospel of Matthew is really just uh, an elaborate, uh, a more elaborate version of this. This is kind of the summary, uh, the bare bones of what you actually need to know. 
Matthew gets a little bit more detailed and lays out more specifically. And so here we find that this is the account that Luke brings to us. And so we read in verse 1 that Jesus was in a certain place. We don't know what place, uh, but he was off. He was praying. And when he was finished, uh, one of the disciples, we don't know which one, said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So they witnessed this. They, Jesus going off again. Why is he always sneaking away? Why is he always making his way off? Like, why is he not hanging out with us anymore? He went off to pray. And then they say, well, maybe it's important what he's doing. Maybe he's investing in something important that we don't know about. Now, I would suggest to you this. If Jesus needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray, right? Like, if there was anybody who probably didn't need to pray, it would be Jesus. If there was anybody who was probably like, I'm good, I don't need to take that time to do that, uh, it would be Jesus. But that's often because we think about prayer primarily as duty. But we are looking to move in our attitude and practice of prayer from duty to delight. Okay? We're moving from duty to delight. Jesus is not going there because he has to pray, because he's excited about it. He, he's ending his day, he's starting his day, he's waking up and he's saying, like, I'm going to go off and pray. He's, he's, it's a part of his normal conversation. He's not like, well, I got to go check this off. I got to go make sure I go through this. He's thinking like, well, you know, I want to go and have a conversation uh, with the Father. And you know why he goes away? Because he doesn't want to be distracted, right? It's the worst when you're in like a really great conversation with somebody and, and, and then people keep coming in and distracting you and you're, it's like interrupting your flow. You're like, could they like just like wait a second? Like we're like, we're really having a good time here. It, it, it's not about like being super spiritual, like, oh, he's got to get away to pray. It's not about that. It's not about the, this, uh, these practices that sometimes we make it like more mystical and spiritual than it like, has to be. It's just mere, merely like, I, I want to have some uninterrupted time <laughs> with the Father. Like, I just want to get away and just be like, okay, like, I'm out here, you know, uh, I'm having a conversation. You find a little space where it's quiet, where you're not distracted by the activities of the day, right? So maybe you, in your practice of prayer, it's not something where, like, you have to go, like, climb some mountain. Maybe it's, like, um, you know, an idea where you're just like, I need to make sure that, like, my laptop's closed and, like, the notifications are silenced on my phone, right? Like, nothing's going to interrupt me. Maybe it's something as simple as that. And so we find here that this is what Jesus does. He gets away to pray. He wants to spend time with the Father. And they see this. They think, well, you know, this must be key. This must be important in his life. They've, they could have asked for instruction in many things. They could have said, hey, Jesus, it'd be really great if you taught us how to do like the like make like lots of loaves and fish thing. That would be really handy, right? Because there's lots of times when we're hungry. Also, we're fishermen, so it would be amazing if we were able to just be like, more fish, more fish, more fish, more fish. Oh my gosh, look, we don't have to go out and fish anymore. Like we could just make as much fish as we want. It would be a really handy thing. But they see here that something deeper is happening, that they value what Jesus is doing in a different way. They see that he, he derives uh, this special relationship and, and intimacy with God from his communication, from prayer. And so he says, hey, uh, so the disciples say, uh, uh, we want to know how to do that. We want to be in communion. We want to be in a place where we are in relation with the Father. 
we want to be a people who are navigating uh, our, our lives in such a way that you are, Jesus. Now, contained within this, uh, this framework that Jesus gives them, as he enables them to pray, uh, he is, is essentially the same framework that we find within the mission and vision of the church. The mission and vision of the church. And, and not just like our church, but like all, all churches, basically. Okay? This is a framework that is basically intensely theological, intensely relational, and is intensely missional. It's about helping people see God and glorify God. So, theological, it's centered around God and, and who he is. It's, it's entirely God-centered. Uh, it's relational. It's calling us into a relationship with, with him and with one another and taking on those responsibilities. And then it's missional. It's sending us out and helping other people meet Jesus as well. So, we look at the text, and we hear the request, and then we come to verse 2, and Jesus starts with this first kind of theological framework. Verse 2, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So, Jesus gives us this kind of this opening framework. He tells them, like, here, when you pray, here's what you need to know. You're going to kind of pray in this way. Is he, is he speaking of the exact words? He could be. This is certainly a prayer uh, that the early church has used throughout the centuries. There are other prayers that are written and repeated. There are certain prayers that we find in the Old Testament that are uh, written in such a way that are intended for us to, to pray these same prayers because they give us a specific theological language in which to direct our mind's attention and our heart's affection to God. So th this is a, a benefit of having these kind of written prayers. But I think in this text, and I think you see in the differences between what you find in the Gospel of Matthew and what you find in the Gospel of Luke, uh, he's getting at here more themes. These are ways that we ought to pray. These are the things that we ought to key on and in this order. And so he opens it up saying, here is something for you to work through as you pray. Don't, you don't necessarily have to use these exact words, uh, but I am demonstrating for you the framework that you ought to step through. And this, uh, of course, he starts off with something that is theological and relational right away. Now, these two things are important because the entirety of the gospel is theological and relational. How do we relate to God and how do we relate to one another? We relate to God and one another through the work of Jesus Christ through his work that was accomplished on our behalf. And so these prayers are given to us as a community. This is a, a corporate project, a community prayer, to get everybody praying on the same page. If you're a part of the church, here's the framework that you're supposed to operate out of. Here's the idea that you're supposed to be working towards. Right. So uh, it's not this kind of like we're discovering these new random frameworks. He's like, this is it. This is the simplicity of what we're going for. And so he says, here's, uh, here's a framework that you're going to work with. Theological and relational, okay? Let's start in his opening address. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. So first he teaches his disciples to address God as Father. So that is both a uh, title that is given to establish God's authoritative rule 
a respect there, that he is um, connected to them and is the head. He is over them in every sort of way. He is over all of us as, as God. Um, it, but then it also uh, connects to an idea of intimacy. When Jesus says this, uh, the word that he uses there is in Greek, but it translates down into uh, the Aramaic that Jesus would have spoken at that time. And he would have used this same term, Abba, which is used at other places by Jesus, of the way that he speaks of God. It's this warm, intimate, close relationship that he has with, uh, with the Father. And so he invites his followers, his disciples, he says, if you're following me, if you're going to walk with me, I invite you to speak to God in the same way that I speak to him in. I invite you to use that same language of intimacy. You're coming to him as a part of my family. You're joining in prayer to, to have this same attitude, the same heart that I have. And so he invites them to use this term. Now, throughout history, uh, this would have not been a term that Israel would have used of God. Like, you know, they, this is a, a more close-knit term. They would have spoken more formally. They would have been, uh, it would have been a more rigid framework that Israel would have used when they talk about God. They would have never thought about God as, as father in this very intimate sense. But yet we find that Jesus here is making this the norm. He's saying, when you speak to God, think about him with this warm intimacy, as this kind and caring father. He's inviting them to think about God in this way as you make your request to God. Think about him as one who would want to, to love and serve you. Now, this address of God as father is relational, but it's also uh, connected theologically. Because he speaks now of the respect that should also come with this term. He is father. He is intimate with us. But then he speaks as this idea of uh, an entire, I guess, the, the only way that we could really describe it as an otherness. He is completely separate and, and holy as the scriptures describe it. And so he continues on and he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, which is basically like a way, like an old school way to say like holy, right? Or, or um, consecrated. Holy is your name. God is holy and he is to be approached and communicated with, with that recognition. So he's entirely uh, intimate and near and close and welcoming and kind, but entirely pure. He has a level of authority that exceeds ours, and it is connected to his purity. So all the things that he does and all the ways that he relates to us is in the best way, without fault, in any way. And so Jesus teaches us to pray in this way, to recognize that holiness. This is a trajectory that you find in the scriptures. I'll give you a couple uh, citations here from uh, the Old Testament that we find in Psalm 111, verse 9. The psalmist prays as, uh, with this same framework, and he says, uh, He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever, holy and awesome in his name. So you find there, the covenant is a theological and relational aspect of God with his people. And then he says, holy and awesome is his name. 
So he's bringing that emphasis there to God's holiness, his purity, his work. In Isaiah 29, verse 23, when he see, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So again, we find this idea of sanctifying or setting apart or consecrating. This is kind of uh, terms that are used surrounding God's holiness. To, um, and he says here that this will happen when they see God's work. They will see him as holy. They will see that his name is set apart, that he's different. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 41. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. So there's that idea there of him making his holiness, his purity known. And so while he's saying this, why he's putting this out there, uh, he's giving us the, uh, an idea of a uh, theological approach, a relational approach, but then we find that there is something that's being done in the sight of the nations, right? So these are people who would be traditionally outside of the covenant. They would have been invited to know God and be a part of, uh, of the family of God, but they would have to become a part of Israel. And he says, I'm doing this in such a way to make myself known theologically, relationally, but then missionally. I'm doing this so that other people might see who I am and they might be invited in. They might be welcomed in. They were a people who were outside of the covenant, but are, are, are carefully and, and uh, welcomed into the family of God through this covenant. One final verse in Ezekiel 38, 23. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Again, another uh, work of theological, uh, relational, and missional output there. That it's connected to God doing this work so that other people see who he is and then can be welcomed into his family. He finishes there saying, then they will know that I am the Lord. It's this demonstration of his holiness, of his purity, that says he is who he says he is. Now, when Jesus then says, hallowed be your name, when we should pray, uh, when we pray these, this prayer, Father, uh, as he says, hallowed be your name, right? He's not saying necessarily like, hey, you should um, just kind of speak in this like old school way, right? Which I would encourage you not to do if you don't say hallowed, like that's weird, right? Don't, don't do that. Just use other words. It's the theme, right? If you don't say hallowed, don't say hallowed, right? Uh, but this is intended to express for us, for those who trust in Christ for salvation, if you are a believer, this is intended to express for us the heart that we should have, that God would be exalted, God would be magnified, that he would be adored. We're saying, we want you to be known, God, we recognize that you are holy, and we want other people to know that you are holy. So th these uh, first two things that come straight out the gate, holy is your name, God, uh, it's, it's a request that we're making. As much as it is a declaration, it's a request. Like, we are saying, we want other people to see this. We want you to show this to the nations. We want other people to understand who you are. And then... Jesus prays, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, this is 
a, ta- a, a trailing prayer and connected to God's uh, his, his intimacy with us, his authority, his, um, his holiness, but then now bringing about uh, his rule, his peace, his righteousness into the world. Your kingdom come. When we say that God is, is holy and he's set apart, sanctify your name as it's been said in some of the other passages, uh, we recognize that when God's kingdom comes, it will demonstrate to the world that he is indeed holy in a way that n- nothing else can. When it's brought to bear on this earth, we will see that he is who he says he is. And so really this is a prayer of desire similar to the previous uh, mention there, holy is your name. This is a prayer of desire for that day when God will completely eradicate evil, where he will, uh, he will rule injustice and all the injustices that, have, that we experience in this world, all of the sad things that we experience in this world will, will come untrue. And that Jesus will have his way here among the earth and he will, uh, will rule and reign and love and care for all people. Where his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why when you go to the, the Gospel of Matthew and you read that, uh, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in he- heaven. On earth as it is in heaven is basically the same thing as like just, it's just an explanation for your kingdom come, what that means. And so this is about praying that God would, would bring his, uh, his authority, his rule to bear so people could see who he is. But then as we, as we work through this opening phrase here, As we look at this opening prayer, Jesus uh, emphasizes through these first two things, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. He tells us by opening with these very specific words that our first desire, our first request, the first thing that that we pray about should be that God is glorified, that his kingdom comes, that he is made known. This is the primary point of a prayer we're enjoying him there right it's it's like it's like when you find something really great and you want other people to know about it and you open up the conversation and you're just kind of like waiting for the moment to like for your window to be like oh i want to tell you about this one thing and you have to get through like all the small talk to get to like the really good part jesus says you you just need to you just need to like start off here with like the most important thing Look at how amazing God is. Look at what he's doing. Wouldn't it be amazing if, if he put everything right in the world? If he, if he was here and he was, uh, his kingdom was here and, and people were operating according to uh, his ways that are righteous and true, wouldn't it be amazing? He says that's how, that's how we should get in there. We should get in there to our, our time of prayer with God and be like, God, I'm so excited to talk to you and I just cannot wait for the day because there's so much stuff here that doesn't make sense to me, but when you're in charge, and I see when your scriptures are followed, when people understand who you really are, then it really makes a lot of sense, and I'm really looking forward to that day. I'm really looking forward to that day when you put everything right, because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things that are, are making us sad. There's a lot of things that are, are injustices in this world, but I'm looking forward to that day, God, when you will do something, when you're going to have this, and, and you're just like, you're just feeding off of this conversation, celebrating God's future work and what he's done and how he's going to accomplish these things. But it's important that we start off with this because once we reflect 
on who God is, we can better approach him. If you skip this part, then you're just going to go to like what you want. Oh, God, here's why I'm here. I need these things. Here's, the, here's my uh, wish list that I'm working on. Um, I've got these ideas that I want to pitch to you. But when we focus on his holiness, his kingdom, when we start there, it serves as a guide for our personal requests. It helps us come through and be like, okay, it's the thing that I'm about to like say and ask for. Is that something that would be found in his kingdom? Because you don't want to be asking for something that you just like previously said, God, I want you to do uh, your thing and I want you to bring your rule and reign here, but I want this thing that's contrary to that. I want to go this other way that's not a part of your kingdom that I'm asking you for. See how that works? It doesn't make sense. You have to start with him entirely uh, theologically focused, relationally focused on being found in him. And then when you start to look into your personal petitions, your personal requests, they're going to line up with what he is doing, what he wants to accomplish. So here's the first prayer in verse 3, uh, the first you know, personal type request. These aren't really personal because uh, these are kind of like intended as a corporate prayer, as we said. This is for everybody to have the same framework. Give us each day our daily bread. So first request, daily provision of food. This is a simple recognition that God is our provider and expressing gratitude and thanksgiving to God for that provision. For whatever that is. It doesn't have to just be food, but a simple recognition that God is our provider. And this is a request that Jesus frames as give us each day, our daily bread. So each day, daily bread. Each day. Now, this stands in contrast to popular prayers of that time and uh, something that continues on today. Uh, there is kind of this uh, group of prayers. It's, it's about like 18 prayers that are in a collection uh, that, that Jews would pray. And out of those, there are two that specifically highlight praying for uh, provision. But they pray these prayers asking for an annual provision. So it's like, okay, well, like, we're going to start the new year, and we're going to pray that God would provide. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong for asking for God to provide for the entire new year. God's not like, well, you didn't ask, you know, you didn't ask for the, the six-month mark, so I'm gonna, really going to overlook that. It's not about that. What Jesus is getting at here is not about the specificity of saying, well, you know, if you didn't ask for today, well, you missed out. It's about the attitude, the theme, that we are to, uh, just as we have an ever-recurring uh, need for food, just as we have this desire come up again, both physical and spiritual, he says we have to live in daily dependence upon him. It's calling us back to not go our own way, to get lost and distracted, because we do get distracted. Because we start to, to fade away in, uh, in other things, and we start to um, have our minds go in other places, and we start to build our own kingdoms, and we do all sorts of crazy stuff that is, a, is not a part of his kingdom coming. And so he says, live independence, acknowledging him as the source of every good, every provision that is made for our lives. Verse 4, second request, is a prayer for forgiveness. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So we got 
Three things happening here. Forgive us our sins. We forgive others. Lead us not into temptation. So let's take the first two together. This is a prayer for daily forgiveness, which is granted, he tells us, only to those who forgive others. I love this. I love this. At first, I was really offended by it. But I, but I love it, right? Because the whole idea is like, well, like I'm supposed to, to be forgiven, you know, of all my sins and shouldn't be dependent upon whether I'm forgiving other people, right? Because like Jesus did the work, then like I shouldn't need to do that technically. And the more I thought about it, I was like, okay, I think I know where he's going with this. And then this morning, I got caught off guard because I was listening to this other so this song when we were getting ready. Um, and it was like, it was talking about like how like there's mercy and God covers like all of our sins and, and, and we ought to like, you know, the spirit and the bride say come and like welcome and it's like free for everybody. And then like, and then I was like, I was like, ooh, that's like a really offensive statement again, right? And you kind of think about it like, well, how could that potentially be offensive? And then I realized, like, the, the, what that's really offensive for is, like, people who, who don't think that they need mercy or don't think that they need forgiveness. Like, why are you going to give, like, mercy for these people? Like, they don't even care. Like, they didn't even repent. They didn't, like, he's just giving this out freely. It's just, like, free for everyone. Just, like, come and get it. And I was, like, seeing how, like, this is something that applies to those who sin deeply and those who are Pharisees and don't want other people to be forgiven. They're just like, oh, you don't deserve that. You don't deserve that gift that God has given. And so the forgiveness component comes into play a little bit more specifically as I, as I looked at it because this seeks God's forgiveness for sin. And the person praying is asking for forgiveness, not because it's deserved— they're not saying, I deserve to be forgiven. They're saying, I'm asking for forgiveness and beca precisely because uh, I've forgiven other people. It's not connected to the worth still, but it is connected to the heart. It's connected to the motive there. And, and the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized, like, Jesus has talked about this a whole bunch already. This isn't out of order. This isn't something that... Uh, that you know, we haven't covered. If you look back at Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he says, remember, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned, right? And then he says this, forgive, and you will be forgiven. So he says, if you want to be forgiven, you also should forgive. You also ought to forgive. And then if you look in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he kind of um, posits this, this little uh, example, this illustration for the hearers. In verse 23, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to worship, and you're like, yeah, I'm ready to, to be here, and you're, you're ready to worship the Lord, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, like just put it to the side, and go, first be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So he kind of says there's this priority of, of forgiveness. Before you come to be forgiven, you go and forgive. It's connected in a specific way. And this is um, something that Christians, as we read the New Testament, we begin to see uh, a little bit more deeply that we receive this forgiveness from God and it shapes then how we ought to forgive others. 
Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3, 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So what's the deal with like this whole, this whole thing? Like Why could this be problematic? Two things. Number one, it sounds like a little bit off that there's this condition for forgiveness. Like when he says that we ought to uh, pray in such a way, forgive our sins because we forgive others who's indebted to us. It seems like kind of a works sort of thing that's happening there, but it's actually not. And here's why. The prayer, if you, if, you, if, you res- if you refuse to forgive other people, but you want it for yourself, what you're essentially saying is, uh, I'm actually God, because I will determine who gets forgiveness, and I need the forgiveness, but those people don't need the forgiveness. So I'm not going to give it to them, but I'm requesting it for me. So you're putting yourself in a position, one, where you're, you've created a massive idol of yourself. You've elevated yourself to the position of God. You're holding on to bitterness and saying, like, I'm not going to deliver that to other people. And God, you should also not give forgiveness to them. I'm going to withhold that. I'm going to be the judge. Uh, and so I'm not going to be in a position of humility. And so, therefore, um, you know, I want mine, but they're not going to get theirs. But what what Jesus is getting at here is that the people who receive forgiveness are precisely the people who are okay with recognizing their deep poverty of spirit. That they are saying, I have sinned against someone else. They have sinned against me, and I realize that they need to be washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. And so I can forgive. And because you have that attitude, because you have that heart, you will come to the Lord with a more open, uh, open hands and say, I, I need help. I need to be forgiven. I need to be welcomed in. Just as I re- recognize that my, my brother has, has needed to be welcomed in and pointed to Christ, uh, I need that same thing. It's about, again, coming back to that celebration of theology. It's theological and relational. We both relate to God. If you've sinned against someone else or they sinned against you, you need to be reconciled to God and to one another. It's a relational and theological component that needs to go into play. You need to move towards God together. And when you move towards God and seeking forgiveness for what you have done, how you've offended God, you'll find each other next to each other with God. And you'll be like, oh, okay, like this is, we could work this out. It's an easy thing. But if you refuse that, then you're going to be apart forever. That's just how it's going to go. When we refuse to forgive, when we read the passage and it, and it kind of comes up as, as a difficulty, we're like, oh, I don't know about that. There are people who have wronged me, or I know that, or I feel like I've wronged God, and I can't really, um, can't really get over that it brings this uh, to, the, to the forefront that we're not really right with God. And therefore, the result of that, of not being right with God, if you go back to the top of the prayer, uh, you're not recognizing him as a father who welcomes you kindly, a father who is holy, who wants to relate to you on the basis of Jesus. And so 
you're going to be unlikely then to recognize that his kingdom needs to come. You're going to be unlikely to recognize that Jesus reigns as supreme. You're going to be unlikely to recognize in the power of the gospel and have confidence in the gospel. You're likely to say, well, I'm going to protect my own life and lapse into that uh, building your own, your own kingdom again. But people who are gospeled, who are filled with, with the understanding of who God is, they can operate in a, in a way that's a little bit more reckless. Because you know at every turn, at every opportunity that you have to offend God and offend others, there is, there, there is a covering for that sin. It doesn't mean that you should be wild and hurt other people and do stupid things. But you're reveling in, in the glory and generosity of the work of Christ, of his, of, of his love. It allows us to move forward with confidence, in boldness, to walk with him. We finish with these words in verse 4. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. So, if you're somebody who's just like, okay, like, this is an incredible Bible difficulty for me, right? This is not really the uh, time or place that I have to unpack all of the ideas behind, uh, you know, the, the law, like, the entire theology of, like, trials and temptation and God's role in all of these things. But when you look at this phrase, this sentence, in context with the rest of the scripture, you really get what's happening here. We know that God does not tempt people, right? The scriptures tell us plainly, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. There are things that, um, you know, he allows us to experience trials and testing in life, right? The book of James tells us that when we experience hardships and trials, uh, sufferings, those things draw us uh, toward him. They're designed for our good. But here, when he says, lead us not in temptation, into temptation, this is basically a prayer for like, spiritual protection it's like a it's kind of like a big junk drawer term for like like it's the very last thing that happens in this list spiritual protection is what he kind of gets to the idea is basically this that we should be a people who are aware of our tendency to wander and to get distracted, and to be into places where we are likely to sin. Now, contextually for Jesus' disciples, they would have needed to hear this because, number one, they're about to be in a position where they are experiencing extreme religious rejection everywhere they go, right? They've already been told you're going to be sent out. Um, they, essentially, Jesus is saying, like, you should pray uh, that the Lord would sustain you that the persecution that you're going to face that perhaps uh, may lead to denial of your relationship with God, you should ask the Lord uh, to equip you, to prepare you for that, that you would not um, 
fall into that, uh, that situation. One commentator, I think, really helped, was helpful in describing this, this section. He described, basically, he summarized this and described it as this. Uh, when, he, when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, he's basically saying this. Uh, we should desire and pray for and ask for desire to avoid falling into the situation where you would need forgiveness. Right? So it's connected to the previous section uh, where he says, forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Essentially, he's saying, lead us not into temptation. He's like, and just, you know, Lord, enable us to not be in the position where we need to ask for forgiveness. Help us to walk with you faithfully, strongly. The only way uh, to do that, to avoid falling into sin, is to follow where God leads and to be dependent upon him and his protection. So essentially, this request here, uh, lead us not into temptation, is essentially a request of dependence upon God. <laughs> That's basically, it's like we're, we're restating a lot of the same things uh, thematically throughout it. We should ask the Lord to keep us from falling into sin, or we should pray that the two things that likely happen, sometimes we have a desire to sin, that's a part of our, our, our flesh and our old man, and then sometimes there's the opportunity to sin that pops up through uh, where we're at or the things that are around us or the things that we're viewing. Basically, what this is prayer is, is like, Lord, make those two things never cross. <laughs> Like, make it so that way the opportunity and our desire never happen at the same time. If the opportunity is there, we want to have the desire to not do that. We don't want to sin. We want to honor God. We want to be holy. And then also, when we do want to sin, oh, there's no opportunity. There's nothing there that can be done about that. Sorry. You know, it's essentially kind of what he's getting at here. And so basically, it's like, rely on God, depend on God, trust him, start back, go to back to the top of the prayer recognize that God is who he said he is, that he's holy, that you want his kingdom to come. This is basically, it's kind of like a loop around. Go back to the top because you need help. Return to the beginning. And so this prayer that he gives us is, is, a, is a framework, it's a model for us to express our dependence upon God, our desire for, for him to come, for his glory to be revealed in our lives. And it's brought about so that we might walk together as a community, that we might have these same desires. Right? We always talk about, we want to know what is God doing? How is he doing it? What is he leading us into together? The Spirit is at work. One, uh, one Lord, one Spirit, one baptism. He's not going to be telling us to be all working on different things at the, like different times. This is the word that we ought to know him, we ought to enjoy him, we ought to walk with him faithfully and go forth in that power and authority that he goes with us. He allows us access and invites us to call him Father. He invites us into that intimacy where we can bring our, our deepest desires, our deepest needs to him. We want God to be honored. We want other people to honor God. And so as you Go forth, not just in prayer, but in your decision-making process, in, your, uh, in the way that you interact with other people in the world and in, in the church. We move forward uh, theologically, relationally, 
missionally so that we can know we ought to relate to one another in a way that brings honor to God, that is in his framework and in his way that allows us to um, complement one another and be gracious with one another and above all, celebrate what he's done, his faithfulness. We all look forward to that day. So we'll dive into prayer a little bit more um, next week as we get to some of the examples that Jesus brings out in chapter 5. But as you go out this week, as you jump into your week, put some of these things into practice. Look at those practical things that you can pray. Orienting your heart towards God and asking him, you know, for his kingdom to come. If you can, if you can work through those first two, the rest of it's going to take care of itself. Right? This is why uh, Jesus simplifies much of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you miss number one, you're not going to get number two right. You've got to love God with the entirety of who you are, with all your being. This is what he's calling us to in prayer. And so we uh, endeavor to do so together this week. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the scriptures. We're grateful for your word, that we can understand how we can follow you faithfully, intentionally. And we ask that you would be, um, be glorified. As you uh, lead us forward this week, remind us of the way that you want to speak to us. Remind us of these points so that we can put them into practice. Give us those opportunities, Lord. Show us how we can, uh, in a sense, get away and bring the distractions um, to a minimum so that we can have that uninterrupted conversation with you. We can enjoy uh, that fellowship and communion that you offer to us. And so we, we want to take full advantage of that. Thank you for making a way for us to do so. May love you. Amen.